Father, we have just sung just a collection of songs that perhaps we've just mouthed and we've vocalized. Where would we stand, Father, if we could only sing these things if they were absolutely true in us, in Christ Jesus? Who would sing? And we know by your kindness and by your working, by the Father and Son and the Spirit of God, Father, many could sing. Just sitting there and stand and singing with the young people behind me, having a body of believers collective, collected here this evening together, singing, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. Father, what a charge and a challenge to our hearts. As we look at Philippians chapter 2 this evening, I pray that, Father, you would give us understanding from above, that the word of Christ would go forth with power by the Spirit of God, that for the unredeemed, their eyes would be open to see that apart from Jesus, there is no eternal life. The eternal Son can give eternal life because he possesses eternal life. You can't give away what you don't have, but Jesus possesses eternal life because he's the eternal one. And he freely gives to all who will believe in him and his finished work. Father, for those who are redeemed, aid us to recognize that too often we allow our own ambition and our own ways to drive the manner in which we live. Help us to be charged by the words of Paul, both from the negative components, but also the positive of all that we have been given in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, aid us this evening as our minds engage, as our hearts and affections are stirred that have been made new in Christ Jesus, to live not unto ourselves, but unto him who has called us, and we will give you praise. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, second part of really the section I entitled, I Will Follow Jesus. I'd like to take a moment and read Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, into chapter 2, verse 11. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of your destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any comfort in Christ, Right? If Paul has been used as a means to encourage the Philippians about their encouragement that if they have received in Christ, and the answer is yes. If there's any comfort from love, right? Yes. If any participation in the Spirit, and the answer is yes. Any affection and sympathy, the answer again is yes. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We come to this section of the text. I've been trying to get a hold of my own heart because I knew I was going to speak. It is one of the parts that stinks, though I'm thankful for the affection that is stirred for Christ as we gather and sing. But as we come to this section of the passage of Scripture, if this text does not make you look into the face of Jesus, oh, like it does, it makes you look directly into his face. And you see in him... All that is lovely and beautiful. You see the, the one who your heart longs for. The one who never fails. The one who is ever faithful. The one who, as eternal God, left heaven's glory. So that as the Father promised in Genesis chapter 3, though his heel would be bruised, he would crush the head of the serpent. And as Paul comes into the section, he's reminding them again of the reality of living in a manner that reflects the gospel that by faith they have confessed. There is no such thing as someone who professes to know Christ and does not live in reflection of that gospel. There will be many on that day who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? And the Lord will say, I don't know you. The next words are frightening. Etern enter into eternal fire. But for those of us that are believers, even texts like this that are so very familiar ought to time and time again move our minds and our hearts to remind us of all that we have been given in Christ. We have been laying out the truth that a pinch and a dash is not enough. That we are to look in the face of Christ as the text has reminded us at the end of Philippians chapter 1. And then we've been laying out the reality that then we must follow him. It is not enough, again, just to make some verbal confirmation. We've been laying out the reality, again, our big idea that by abiding in Christ is what enables us to live collectively to advance the gospel. Like, praise God, there's nothing else we have to add in order for us to be able to be a follower of Christ. Right? It's not like Jesus got us 99% of the way. I just got to make up the 1%. No, he did it all, Right? And so he lays out this truth for us. And really, what I've been drawing you to see from the text is I want you to see, I want my own heart to see that we have been given salvation in Christ Jesus. That Christ himself gives himself to us. And in the text, Paul and the Philippians are set forth really as, as, a, as a testimony of individuals who have been radically transformed by the working of the gospel of Christ. 
And as Paul is moving through this section, he is going to move from the lesser to the greater, right? Like he's going to move from Paul, Timothy, overseers, deacons, right? All the saints at Philippi. And he's moving this argument and he's going to actually declare it in a song where he's going to speak about the greatest one who exemplified this desire to not grasp hold and live for self-ambition, but was willing to set aside all to obey the will of the Father. And he moves again from the lesser to the greater, from us or the Paul and the Philippians and Timothy to Jesus Christ. Christ again is set as the epitome of the one who lives out the reality as we hear over and over in the gospel, not my will but thine be done. Have you heard that this week from me? Life's not about you and me. You are not saved so that you can live under yourself. I've heard some of you guys jokingly, hopefully, rebuking one another. I talked to a husband and a wife, and she was talking about her husband kind of getting a little ornery. And so she said to him this week, did you die on the cross for your sins? It was in English, not in Korean. And I heard about some kids, and, and dad was kind of rebuking them about something, maybe getting a little, little, you know, little heated within the family there. And the kids turned and said, well, dad, did you die on the cross for our sins? Like, I'm thankful there's some maybe good tools that are utilized. I'm thankful that you can bring my parents into your lives and welcome them in. I hope you know that, you know, they're, they're, they're just like you and I, those who have been transformed by the gospel. But here within the text, Paul is moving again from the lesser to the greater, and he's reminding us of the one who truly set aside all to live for the will of the one that has sent him. And within the text, he's calling the church collective to live out this reality. That it's not just individuals who are saved, but collectively, all those who have been brought together within the body of Christ, both in the local body, but body universal, have been enabled to be reminded of all that we've been given to advance not our own cause, but the cause of Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed that about churches? Have you ever noticed that about mission statements for organizations like Faith or IRBC? Like, like you, you can only be so original, right? Like, you can only word it so many ways. But eventually, like, all of the stuff sounds the same. Glorifying God, making disciples, right? Like, take the word to the world. Like, okay, yeah, like, it's, it sounds great. Little pithy statements and nice little logos, right? Little, little statements underneath your logo. But the reality is we ought not to be vastly different because we don't have multiple missions. We have one. We have a gospel that has been entrusted to us by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit of God. Though humanity rejected God back in the book of Genesis, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit of God were actively at work to move all of human history to continue to point and continue to move it to the coming of the Son who became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the de declaration. And so in this section, as we talked about abiding again in Christ and enabling us to live unto God alone and live for his gospel, we've been talking about the truth of unity, unity that comes through humility in verses 1 through 4, that this is what the gospel of Christ does. Like, you want to see what you're living for? Check what you're, what you're pursuing and where you're pointed. Check what you're trying to champion. Like sometimes I meet Christians who know Christ as Savior and they're more interested in championing the cause of a sports team or more interested in championing like whatever they're selling. 
Churches become an avenue in which they could take their wares and like gather people to build their little pyramids to make lots of money. And then when that gets exhausted, you leave that church and go to the next one, right? It's really sad. And I'm not saying you can't make a living. Make a living. But how, how quickly do those things come to the forefront of our conversation and the gospel goes to the background? Paul here goes, no, no, this is not, not to be. Because the reality of the life of the one who has been redeemed is one who has been impacted by the gospel of Christ, not just partly, but wholly. And so as we look to Christ, we're enabled by the Spirit of God to humbly remind ourselves of the unity around the person and work of Jesus Christ. But then he goes into verse 5 and following where he will lay out the second truth where we will really spend tonight and Lord willing tomorrow night in this text in second, or in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. But really recalling and the ability of the believer to recall Christ's humility, this Christ-centered focus. One commentator said this about this section. Mount says that Paul is setting the stage. He wants these people to be single-minded, focused on the gospel of Christ, to be together, to be functioning as an adhesive group, bound by love, Jesus would say. So he's going to give them an example of Jesus. By giving them the example of Jesus, he's not saying, do what Jesus did. Because none of us, I suspect, he writes, are going to die on a cross and be exalted to heaven and be given a name above every other name. He writes, some, of the, uh, some commentators chafe on this passage because we can't do what Jesus did. But it's a technicality, he writes. By looking at Jesus' humiliation on the cross and his exaltation to heaven, which we'll talk about tomorrow, Jesus is teaching us about the character of God. It is that character of humility and the character of God that Jesus illustrates. That is to be our characteristic as well. Like just think of what he's saying in just those simple words. Like he's not setting Jesus' example as an example that we pattern in its exact imprint. We can't. But the whole argument is that you have been radically transformed by the gospel of Christ. And if you say by faith you have trusted Christ, if you have been made a saint, a holy one, if by God's grace you have been set apart by him and you have been made a servant of God, the reality is that it should impact what you live for and how you live. Not just like for a moment at camp, but every nanosecond of every single solitary day from the beginning to the very end. It ought not to be, hey, I did my part and now I'm a senior saint and like I'm gonna let the next generation do it and you know what, like, I'm going to just like kind of coast into my retirement years and then go meet Jesus. Like, I, I, there's nothing more exciting to me than meeting within churches, senior saints who not only love Christ, but are faithfully still serving him. And we have like tons of examples of that right here on this, uh, this campus of IRBC camp, right? We have all these people who are laboring, not just to work in the kitchen or do the mail room or, or mow the grass because it just needs to get done. These are individuals who want to finish well. I praise God for that. And so Paul is reminding the believers of this reality that we are to constantly recall in order for us to, to humble ourselves before God, the working of Christ who has humbled himself for us. <coughs> One commentator says that the main point of this passage is the call to have the mind of Christ, 
which is the pattern for the Christian mind from the previous passage in verse 5. Verse 5 contains the words that builds the verbal bridge connecting the ethical exhortation in 2, 1 through 4 to this Christ hymn of 2, 6 through 11. Paul uses Christ's example to put on display the reality of those who have been made one, right, union in Christ Jesus, and they share in the Trinitarian love that comes through faith in Christ Jesus. And so Paul's going to lay out two arguments, really, from this illustration, from the life of Christ. He's going to make two main points in this section, verses 5 and following, about the life of Christ. First, he's going to say this about Jesus. Though he is the eternal Son of God, he humbled himself. You remember the previous section? The call to abandon self-ambition, right? He doesn't, again, he's, he's, he's... a picture, Paul is, of an individual who's radically transformed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as such, he was enabled by the working of the Spirit of God to set aside his own pursuits. Where would Paul be if he continued to pursue, even after salvation, what he desired? Right? He'd be killing Jews or Christians. Right? He'd be doing all manner of things that, that everybody knew that he was doing. And he would continue to rise within those ranks. But all, like, it wasn't just that Paul's eternal destiny was changed. The things that he lived for changed. Like, can you imagine being the early believers and then all of a sudden hearing that Paul has been transformed? Can you imagine being the first individuals interacting with Paul? Like, I'd be like, no, you go first. <laughs> I heard about that guy. Well, what do you find? You find the reality here that Paul is moving from saying this is true not only of my life, but this is even in its most infinite expression and example found in the life and the ministry of the eternal son. What would you do if that was the plan and you were the second person of the Trinity? Have you ever thought about that? Like in eternity past, Ephesians 1, this plan, right, was made. And you sit there going, ah, how about you send the Holy Spirit? Like, he can enflesh. Like, you think about this. The eternal son was willing to humble himself and take on flesh. But the second truth that he'll punch home in the Latin, and tomorrow is this, that as a result of the son willingly doing the will of the one who sent him, what did God do? He highly exalted him. <laughs> he gave him a name that is above every name. And so here he lays out this truth for the Philippians to recall the humility of Jesus as they examine their own lives. So let's unpack this language of recalling Christ's humility. First, he says in five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Literally, another translation translates it, act in this way as it befits those who are in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ becomes the launching point of Paul recalling the earthly life and the ministry of Christ. Like even as we were reminded this morning, the language literally here is this think. And what is he telling you to think about? His enfleshment, his life, his death, his burial. This aids you and I. This aids the early believers to process not just the circumstances of life, but their life in its entirety. 
Because when you interact with individuals who have come to saving faith and they continue to grow in their understanding of the gospel of Christ and they abandon all to follow Christ, it makes absolutely no sense to the friends and family around them, right? Like, what do you think happened when a man from, from Korea, right, my dad, and had this like six-figure income back in 1970, like late 70s? He's making a ton of money. Like, I remember later on after we immigrated, my dad had sold two apartments. And he was like, you know what? We sold those for 50000 when we left. And back then it was a lot of money, still a lot of money, right? And then he goes like 10 years later, he's like, hey, guess what? You know those two apartments? They sold for half a million each or co- collective. Like, as a kid, I, I was like, dad, I don't need that information. Because I'm a pastor's kid, we had no money. And then like 10 years later or whatever, he'd be like, you know what? They sold again. I just heard that they sold for a million collected. I was like, dad, why are you telling me this? Like, you want to talk about an old sage? That's my dad. My dad, like, never gave me the answer. He just, like, poked at me. Made me process and think. Like, when Dr. Little was doing that thing today, I was, like, having, like, flashbacks. I was like, oh, my word. It's like my father, right? Like, just tell me the answer. Give me the answer. But you know what? Like, I'm so thankful for a man who abandoned all for the sake of Christ. And when God got a hold of his heart, it's like everything now became a means. It was all put on the table to be able to be utilized, not for himself, but for Christ. And again, some here in this room, God has stewarded you lots of money and lots of funds. Praise God. Whether you have much or you have little, the same opportunities afforded you if you know Christ the Savior. And here within this language, Paul is laying out this truth that the only way you will actually abandon those things that your selfish heart desires to pursue will be if you continue to look into the face of Christ. You continue to remind yourself and bring to recall not just who Christ is, but what Christ has done on, in your stead. And so he calls these believers to have this kind of mind, not just within their individual selves, but among yourselves. Remind yourselves and think about the incarnation, the life, the death, the burial of Jesus. I, I find it very interesting that as a young man, when I attended camp like you're doing, and as I talk with people who come to camp on a regular basis, that oftentimes camp becomes the most pinnacle moment of the calendar year. Like, I looked forward to camp. I remember before I went to camp, because I would spend four to five weeks, sometimes working and then sometimes attending, and I'd go to camp as much as I could. And I looked forward to that. I would actually prepare my own heart and try to think of all the sins that I had done and confess as much as I can because I knew what he'd pre- preaching and I didn't want to get convicted and then have to walk forward and like set those things right. There was always more to examine, right? But like I remember like I couldn't wait for camp because camp was going to be that time that I was going to get that all right with God. And I started realizing later in life, like that's really bad. Like It ought not to be that I need this in order for me to again be, be reminded so that I can live for Christ. Actually, the gospel says, you already have this all year long. This is the beauty of the church. It's the beauty of faithful pastors, and I've met many of you here this, this week, who simply get up, from the, get up in their pulpits and herald the excellencies, not of themselves, but of the word of God and of Christ himself. Right? You get to be reminded of the encouragement that you have in Christ. Right? The comfort of love, the fellowship of the Spirit of God, and participation, the affections and the sympathies. Every Sunday, not just through the preaching of the word, but through the one another's that happen. Right, And so here Paul is laying out and he's saying, have this mind among yourselves. And where was this source? Where's this mind sourced in? He again uses a language, in Christ Jesus. Union has resulted in the believer's possession of this kind of mind, a mind that has been made new. Have this mind. One 
lexicon translates have the mind to think in this particular manner. As I was thinking through this, and again, I don't have time to unpack all of it, but I was thinking of the ministry of the Spirit of God. Like the same Spirit of God who inspired the text of Scripture is actively taking that word, and he's doing what in the life of the believer? He's illuminating their minds. Like let me give you just a kind of an application to this very quickly, to have the, this kind of mind. When you read your Bible and all the things that you're hearing in the morning, apply those truths. But do something before you apply those truths. Pray and ask the Spirit of God to do what God promised, Christ promised that the Spirit would do. Say, Spirit of God, you, Jesus said, you're going to take the Word of God and you're going you're to illuminate my mind. You're going to teach me all things that I need to know about Christ. Ask him to do it. Like you think the Holy Spirit of God, like, I can't remember who said it, but like, I think Dr. Little said it about your pastor and like coming to him to ask him questions about the Bible and what it means. Like, absolutely, I would love to have those conversations with my congregants. And I do. But guess what? The Holy Spirit will actively do what God has promised he would do. Ask him to do it. Like, I, I see so many people just open up their Bible. Like, I did that so many times. Open up my Bible, read it. Like, I don't get it. What is this thing about a circumcision? Like, that's weird, right? It's like it becomes such an odd thing. And yet you go, Spirit of God, teach me. You said you would show me Christ. You said that everything I needed to know about Jesus and all the things that he taught and all the things that he did, you would open my eyes. Show me Christ. You think that's not a prayer he's going to answer? Man, for the believer who has been made new as new creations in Christ Jesus, he will take your minds and the word of God by the Spirit of God. And he will give you understanding. And when each believer collect, and then collective together, gather together and have this mind, they will set aside selfish ambition. They will not be like those charlatans and those, uh, those conjurers and those speakers within the early part of the letter where they were simply sharing the gospel to spite Paul. They were, there would be individuals who would come alongside and labor together with Paul and Timothy and the overseers and the deacons and all the saints as they are made into the image of the Son, as their minds are transformed. They will live as they think and have the same mind that is in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just stop there. He goes further. Look at what he says. Speaking of Jesus, the language of who, that pronoun, really moves Paul into expanding the description of Jesus. Who, who Jesus, right? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Keep in mind, again, that the rehearsing of Christ's incarnation is an illustration to remind the Philippian believers of the person and the character of God. One author says, it is of some interest that these difficulties are concentrated in the sentences that deal with divine mystery. That is, on the basis of what we know and came to be believed about Jesus' earthly life, Paul is trying to say something about what he could not, uh, could, could not, that could not be observed, yet he came to, be, to believe about Christ's prior existence as God. And so he, when, when in essence, what he's saying is, like, there, though you can learn Christology from this section, and definitely, like, there's a robust Christology here. That's not the purpose of why he's writing this illustration. He's wanting you to understand that the gospel enables you to die to self, be made alive in Christ, set aside all self-ambition, and live for Christ. And you want to see what that looks like? Look at Jesus. Though he is God, 
before he ever took on human form. One author, I think, speaks of the fact that the eternal son like, took on that vocation. He didn't set aside his deity. He still was God, 100% the eternal son. But the point of the text is that though he had all the rights and privileges as the second person of the Trinity, what did he do for you and for me? What did he do in our stead? He did not grasp hold of that position. Like we're coming up to the 4th of July. And if you're an American, like I am, right? It's Independence Day. It's the celebration of our freedoms. And we love to champion our rights and our freedoms. And in many ways, it's, so, it's right, right? Like, don't infringe. You guys live in Iowa. And Iowa, like, has handled this way better than the state that I'm from. Right? I'm like, oh, like any time our governor gets on any news platform or any, like the angst within my own heart, not just as a Christian, but an American comes out. I'm like, oh, like I had to, I had to like study. Some of you guys were just born into it. I had to study. I bet you the, those people who go through citizenship know more about American history and American, American uh, founding than the people who probably grew up in it. Because, like, you got to learn about all that stuff. you got to memorize it all, all the dates and how many senators and all that stuff. Like, it's all in there. I remember just being, like, so scared. But I remember sitting across from this man and going through that process, and he's asking me all these questions. And I actually got the first one wrong. And I was like, oh, my word, I'm going to fail. I'm going to get deported, right? And then I got the rest of them right. And I was like, oh, praise God. And the man was, like, so serious. He's like, oh, one question. And then, like, when I, when, when I got the first question wrong, he was staring at me. I'm like, oh, that's wrong, isn't it? And he's like... He's like, is that your answer? I was like, no. What, what's your answer? I don't know, right? And then I got the other questions right, and then you get done, and he's like, welcome to America. Right? I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> I was like, he's like, his whole demeanor changed, right? I'm one of you, right? I, I went through the process, and by God's kindness, he allowed me to be brought into this country. I love America. I'm American. But sometimes, oftentimes, American citizenship rears its ugly head by demanding its rights. Christian, you're American. But Christian, you're a Christian. What are we doing? You don't understand, Pastor. Don't be stepping on this subject. I'm stepping on it. Because I'm not doing it just to get you to change the way you live right now. But you're going to stand before the Almighty Creator who sent His Son to die in your stead. He who could have grasped hold of that right did not. What are we doing? Well, pastor, you know, the right to bear arms. Like, I'm all about that. Well, ammunition, pastor. You got to hoard them all. You got to get, don't get off my land, right? Like, we love that stuff. I get it. Maybe not to the same extent. Fine, you were born here. You got one on me. Christian, did you forget who you were made? You went from death to life through the Son. This one who could have grasped hold of his position set it aside for you and for me. The eternal Son humbled himself. One author says this, that the eternal Son did not think of his status as God as something to, that gave him the opportunity to get and get and get. Instead, his very status as God meant he had nothing to prove, nothing to achieve. And precisely because he is one with God, one with this kind of God, what did he do? He made himself nothing 
and he gave and gave and gave. Is that how the gospel moves you and me? Oh man, pastor, you're, you're stepping, you're stepping. I'm not preparing you just for this life. I'm preparing you for the one to come. Because you may not listen to me now. You may ignore the words of what Paul here is saying. But on that day, you'll have to listen. And it'll be too late. What an opportunity we've been given. And so Paul calling these believers to have this kind of mind. That who though again, Christ had the right, as verse 6 says, though he was in the form of God, I don't have time to unpack all this. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But rather instead, he was willing to do the will of the one who had sent him. The language of grasping there has the idea to be forcibly retained. Like he could have held on to it. Paul here calls the Philippian believers to be reminded that when they accepted Christ as Savior and were made saints in Christ Jesus, their old self died along with their own desires and ambitions. But they were made also alive in the Son. This gospel mindset that Paul sets before the believers in 2.4 is enhanced by the life of Jesus Christ, the eternal son who gave, himself, gave of himself rather than serving himself. Just like Paul does not call the believers to do something that he was not willing to do, listen to the text. Christ does not call you and I to do something than in an infinitely far more difficult reality he was not willing to do for us. Christ, again, is not grasping, but rather freely doing in accordance with the will of the, God, will of the Father. One translation translates verse 6 this way, precisely because, or although he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God grounds for grasping, or he did not regard it as a prize to be seized to be equal with God. But what did he do in verse 7? He emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Literally, the translation there is the language of he became nothing. Carson says this, the language of emptying, literally translating, translated, the original reading, he emptied himself. But the expression does not mean he emptied himself of something. For example, it is not as if he emptied himself of his deity. For then he would no longer be God. Nor did he empty himself of the attribute of his deity. Though, he had been, uh, though that has been argued. For he would likewise again cease to be God. And so another commentator says this. So what does this mean that he emptied himself? The real humanity, this author says, of the incarnation and the cross is that one who was himself God and who never during the whole process stopped being God could embrace again such a vocation. So what's it for us? <laughs> We like sacrifice a little bit for Christ's stead, and we think, hey, look, yeah. what are we doing? I've talked to some PKs this week. I'm a PK. <laughs> this is a good text to go back to as a PK, isn't it? To be reminded of though at times, even as a PK, we have to sacrifice. What is it compared to the sacrifice of our, the eternal son who gave up, gave of himself for us? All of this is advancing the gospel in the name of Christ. And so over and over again, Paul will remind the believers of all that they have been given in Christ Jesus, 
The beauty of the cross work of Christ. The ability now as new creations to set a self-selfish ambition. That if the divine son was willing to do that in our stead, how much more for us who he paid the penalty for to do the same as well. Bruce Ware in a book called The Man Christ Jesus, which I would highly recommend, if you read it, you're not going to agree with everything. You're going to read it and you're going to think at different points he's saying heresy. And I think like he really sometimes crosses some lines and he made me angry. But he looks at Christ not through his divinity but through his humanity. And I would highly recommend the book. It's a good one. Engage with it. Um, Again, The Man Christ Jesus by Bruce Ware. But he says this. He was always God. And speaking of this verse, he says, he now becomes something he was not, a human being. Would you do that? Like you're the creator of the world. Like forget Buddhism and their idea of reincarnation that if you're really bad, like you're going to come back as like a slug or something, right? Like for a human to become a slug, it's a like definitely steps down, right? Right, like human slug, I would think that's pretty bad, especially when a little, you know, fifth grader gets a hold on some salt. Like, that's a pretty bad day, right? Okay. But think about this eternal son, creator of the world, becoming flesh. Like, every time you're reminded through Christmas and his infleshment and through Easter, are you not humbled? Like, I hope Christmas doesn't become a thing like, oh, it's just sentimental. Like, you're literally being reminded of the eternal son who took on human flesh for you and for me. And so here, within this language, he calls us to, again, be reminded of everything we have been given in the son. One author says this, but the earliest followers of Christ had come to believe, of course, on the basis of the resurrection and the ascension, was that the one whom they had known as truly human had himself, uh, himself known prior, uh, had himself known prior existence in the form of God. Not meaning that he was like God, but really not. But that he was characterized by what was essential to being God. It is the understanding which correctly lies behind one translation that translates it. He is in the very nature God. Think through this. Equality with God is what Christ possessed as the eternal one. Lucifer as a created being, a created being, grasped hold of and desired something he had no right to. And so we sit here, and through these initial verses, we're reminded of what Christ did on our stead. The verse 7, again, translated in a different translation, translates, on the contrary, he poured himself out by taking the form of a slave, by being born in the likeness of human beings, and being recognized as a human. One author, and we'll end here, says this, In Christ Jesus, God has thus shown his true nature. This, this is what it means for Christ to be equal with God, to pour himself out for the sake of others, and to do so by taking the role of a slave. Hereby, he not only reveals the character of God, but from the perspective of the present context also reveals what it means for us to be created in God's image, to bear his likeness, and to have his mindset. It means taking the role of a slave for the sake of others, the contours of which 
are what the next clause ultimately will spell out. And so as we end with this section, maybe I should have said this, I have one little illustration. As a pastor's kid, there were times in my life where my, I, even as a kid, saw the injustices that my dad faced. Accusations that were hurled at him that were not true. Like heinous accusations. There's a lot of pastor's kids who never desired pastoral ministry. And sometimes it's because of mom and dad and their inconsistencies. A lot of times it's because of the way that they're treated. Why would you want to go into that profession? That makes no sense. But I remember one particular time, and I don't have time to go into all the details, but I remember like so angry as a 13, 14-year-old kid that I was actually going to go and defend my dad physically. They were having a business meeting. It was nasty. And I remember like running in there, and God, by his grace, had this man, and Koreans aren't that big, but this man was massive. And he, like, it was my buddy's friend, and he saw me come in the door, and he just bear-hugged me. And I'm like, let me go, let me go. I heard what happened to my dad. And like, actually, it wasn't even moving like that. It was more like this, let me go, let me go, because he was so big, right? <laughs> I remember just being so mad. I remember just like so angry. And the man was like, what are you going to do? And I was like, I'm going to get him. I'm going to get that guy who did that to my dad. He finally got me calmed down, and because eventually you just go limp, right? Because it's like, can't fight this, right? I went home that day. I had a conversation with my dad. He goes, I heard what happened. <clears throat> I was like, Dad, I was just trying to defend you. What are you trying to defend? Sam, what are you trying to do? You're going to come in there and do what? The gospel's going to advance like that? Like, I remember sitting there going like, wait a second. Like, in my heart, because you don't say it as a Korean, because you get in other trouble, right? I remember going like, wait a second. Like, I'm trying to defend you. And like, I'm getting in trouble? Like, this is not fair. Again, <clears throat> as the old sage said, I didn't get it that day. It took years before I got it. I was like, I remember like different moments in my adulthood where I was like, oh, that's what dad was doing. I mean, dad didn't care. This was a man who's, who was, who, not that his, he doesn't have feelings, but this was a man who abandoned all for the cause of Christ. And anything that would hinder the gospel's advancement was something that had to die. And what needed to go forward was a continual recalling of all that was done for him. My dad is a man, and you've learned this this week, who got saved by the grace of God and has never gotten over it. I have had some of you say to me, I wish I could meet your dad. I wish you could too. There are people in here who have met my dad. I'm not making this up. Ask the Fritzes. Like, they know my dad. This is a man whose every comment and every action has been transformed by the radical working of the gospel of Christ. And every moment of his day, the gospel of Christ oozes out of him. He must make Christ known. Is that just because he's so special? Nope. Because guess what? The gospel that he was saved by in Christ Jesus is the same gospel that you and I have been given. The Holy Spirit of God who opened his eyes and showed him sin, righteousness, and judgment to come is the same Holy Spirit that opened your eyes. May God aid us to live for this one who has given his all for us. Michael picked a song that's very appropriate. I'm going to have them come at this time. I'm just going to have you, just whether you want to just sit in your seat and have your head bowed, eyes closed. If you want to watch, that's fine too because the words will be up on the screen. It's just called a Christian's Daily Prayer. 
And I just want to read you two lines from it, and then they'll sing, or, th- or four lines here. He's, they're going to sing this. Each hour is yours by wisdom's plan. Each deed empowered by sovereign hands. Renew my spirit, help me stand. Be glorified today. That's the call of the text. None of it is ours. Stop holding it like it is. Look to Christ. Follow him. Father, aid us, even as the song is sung. Aid us to look to you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.